2: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today's show is about inclusivity and the arts. The late U.S. representative from Texas and civil rights leader, Barbara Jordan, believed that the arts can transcend our deep, differences and stubborn divisions. She said, art has the potential to unify. It can speak in many languages without a translator. The arts do not discriminate. The arts can lift us up. Later this hour, we'll hear about progress in art and inclusion at the High Museum and We begin with greater accessibility to beauty outdoors. Gardening can provide tremendous satisfaction for those who are in good physical condition. For those with challenges, gardening has not always been accessible. Even visiting some gardens can be difficult. Now there is a community resource in Atlanta to change that situation. Here to tell us about the Ability Garden are Brooke Adams, the co-director of arts education and gallery director of Callenwald Fine Arts Center, along with the founder of of Trellis. Rachel Cochran, welcome to City Lights.
1: Thank you so much for having us. How did
2: this partnership between your two organizations come about?
1: I actually reached out to Trellis. Callenwald completed the restoration of a greenhouse on our campus in 2017, and we also received a fund, called the Frank Barm Fund, that specifically is to make the arts accessible for those with mental and physical disabilities. And with those two things, we saw Trellis as an amazing organization to partner with and offer their horticultural therapy programming on our campus.
2: Rachel, please tell us a bit about Trellis and how it got its start.
3: Trellis is a 501c3 organization. It was founded at the end of 2017. So, 2018 was really our first year of operation. So, we're a fairly young nonprofit, but I feel like we're really breaking down barriers, so to speak, in the world of accessible gardening. And Trellis has a co founder. Her name is Wendy Battaglia, and Wendy currently works on a part time basis at the Shepherd Center, working as a horticultural therapist with brain and spinal cord injury patients. So we are very, very well-versed in disability. I am a trained horticultural therapist, but I also had an experience in my family. My daughter, when she was 12, was hit by a car and she was seriously injured and has a traumatic brain injury, which causes lifelong injuries and challenges but she is mobile but I think it really took having that up close and personal experience with disability to really help me to fully understand the isolation and the hardships that come for people with impaired physical mobility or cognitive disability that, you know, getting out and participating in recreational, enjoyable activities and just being connected as a community is really a challenge. I've been a lifelong gardener and I've always been very observant and just really noticed that their gardens are not set up for people that can't walk. Community gardens, you know, the surface is not wheelchair friendly. I did my horticultural therapy internship at a wonderful organization called Skyland Trail. It's inpatient mental health for youth and adults here in Atlanta. And we had a visitor come uh, who had a brain injury and was in a wheelchair. And we really had a hard time maneuvering that person through the garden because it just wasn't set up for wheelchairs. And so moving forward, trellis you know, we use the power of plants and gardening to change people's lives by uh, creating activities with purpose and combating isolation and building community.
2: Can you tell us about the therapeutic quality of gardening? You mentioned being outdoors, being engaged with others, seeing plants and beauty around you. What further therapy is involved for those living with physical or cognitive disabilities that gardening can provide?
3: I can speak all day on that, (laughs) but (laughs) I'll try to keep it short and simple. I think the best thing to to give everyone an overview is that gardening is such a normalizing experience that pretty much everyone has some familiarity and comfort with you know outdoors and plants. Horticultural therapy focuses on goals so there are treatment goals and if you're in a clinical setting like Shepherd Center the goal can be to you know use my hands again And gardening has so much handwork where you're, you know, holding a trowel or scooping soil or potting plants or holding a watering can. And also, if you are mobile but maybe are recovering from an injury, you can stand and walk and bend and stoop. So it's a wonderful, happy place to be if you're in a recovery scenario like a rehab hospital. But the other angle is there's a lot of emotional support that comes with gardening, and I would like to just touch a little bit on, I work with a group of incarcerated women in DeKalb County, and we teach them organic farming skills, and they donate the food to a local food pantry. So what that is doing for them is the garden has become this just magnificent space that makes people happy and provides a refuge and provides focused activities that really help them cope with prison life. And then being able to grow the food and donate it to the outside community really makes them feel connected to the community, unlike they would have that opportunity. And they're also learning a lot about healthy food. And a lot of them have dreams of, you know, being gardeners or starting their own farm when they get released. It's very powerful the way people just become alive,
2: you know, when they're in a gardening scenario. And you're providing them with a sense of purpose as well.
3: I did a session at our transitional center where the incarcerated women are, you know, learning skills and you know, they're able to get out and get a part-time job in the community while they're still incarcerated. But it's a step to getting them closer to getting back to the community and, and getting their lives back. But one of the women came up to me and said how much she loved working with plants and that her dream was to create a farm base. Skin body product company that she wanted to be an entrepreneur, that that was her dream.
2: Wow. Now, the Ability Garden will debut at Callenwald on November 14th. What makes up an Ability Garden?
3: Well, Callenwald itself is just an incredible space. I mean, you go down the driveway, you feel like you're in another land. The trees are huge. The wildlife is running amok. There's a fox family and not to mention just the beauty of the home and, and the old trees. But Kalenwald is set up with a, a beautiful glass greenhouse that has a wheelchair accessible pathway. And when we saw that, the you know, the lights clicked. We're like, this is the place. This is the place we've been looking for, because up until now, Trellis has been taking its programs to other organizations. Some of the organizations we serve are Kate's Club. We work with a housing organization here in Atlanta called Mercy Housing. I do a senior garden club we have a mental health facility out in Sandy Springs called The Cottages at Mountain Creek. I had some at-risk youth students down in Vine City that I worked with last year. So we were really running all over Atlanta and our dream was to have a space that we could call home and that people could come to us and we could have a garden space that would be ours that we could do programming out of. But it had to be <laughs> impaired mobility friendly And when we saw that greenhouse with the wheelchair access, we just thought it was a great fit. And so Callenwald has some surrounding garden spaces that um, we are working on. And we just built a beautiful raised bed garden that is now fully wheelchair accessible as well. And it's really been great because people, I won't say they're beating the doors down, but <laughs> everyone I run into sounds like, yes, we would love to have a piece of this. This sounds exactly like what we need. So uh, the, the, our first clients was wonderful special ed students out of Inman Middle School. And they were right down the street from Callenwald and just a bus ride away. So we worked with the special ed teachers and we've done several sessions with them. Everything kind of hit a standstill this year with uh, the pandemic, but the special ed students really do not have a lot of opportunity to get outside and garden and and be in the nature setting and we provide purposeful activities in the greenhouse for them, learning about plants, growing food. Uh, One of the sessions we did was making cookies for the birds, so we made bird seed cookies, and uh, we got to hang them up all over Kellenwald, and, you know, it was a way to just connect the students to something fun and different, and connect them to nature, and the teacher's just think it's a wonderful thing. It teaches them about focusing and paying attention and following directions, and they love it. The thing is, it's so easy because they really enjoy it. They love the plants. They love the freedom to walk and walk on the trails and be outside, and then I work with the Stroke Survivors Support Group out of Emory Rehab Hospital, and I have a new client, which is the Ruby A. Neeson Diabetes Foundation. It's an education and awareness support organization for people living with diabetes. And we're hoping to start a new monthly support group for them focused on healthy eating and growing food and just building community.
2: I read that the entire Ability Garden at callenwald was built in one month, is that correct?
3: Well, I'll say I have some wonderful volunteers. My husband's one of them. I happen to be surrounded by engineering type men. And so they got out there and helped design it. And the Atlanta Botanical Garden actually donated the lumber. So I wanted to give a big shout out to Mo Hemmings is the community outreach manager for the Atlanta Botanical Garden. And she helped us get the project off the ground with the lumber donation. Callenwald has been so supportive the whole step of the way (laughs) Brooke always says just whatever you need whatever you need but the thing about Callenwald and gardening is you know my my dream is it's going to be atlanta botanical garden number two so in order to make that happen we want it to be a special place a beautiful place and rome was not built in one day so while the raised beds are there and functioning and the greenhouse is amazing we envision you know working with our groups to you know create this space And we want our our clients to do it and to be a part of it because I think buy-in is very important and we want them to have a part in building this garden that we hope will be a legacy for Callenwald and Atlanta.
1: I'd like to say also, not only that, but Rachel was out there every single day. It wasn't just volunteers. It was definitely a labor of love and that was evident seeing Rachel and Trellis out there every day building this garden so Rachel it's not just (laughs) everyone you really drove this forward and it's so appreciated it is it is
3: passion we are very passionate we believe in what we're doing and uh, some I was laughing I said you know if I had a choice between going to Italy or starting a new garden I think I'd pick start a new garden (laughs) it's just I love purpose and reward
2: what types of plants are you growing in the Ability Garden at Callenwald?
3: I'll say the ones I'm dreaming of growing. So well, the funny thing about the Callenwald greenhouse is it was put in a couple years ago, but no one was actually grooming the space. They have a beautiful community garden in the back, but the front of it's a little ho-hum. So I said, Now we gotta make something happen out here. So I started in July building a a native plant garden and I love education. I love teaching people about plants. So what's in the native plant garden is, uh, you know, simple things, you know, marigolds and zinnias. And I put in some purple okra plants because they're very magnificent looking when they start growing. We have some grasses and uh, some herbs. You know, it's a work in progress, but I'm kind of a pseudo-landscape designer, so I'm always looking at the period of Callenwald and what plants will go there and trying to keep it historically accurate. And, And the raised beds, of course, we love to grow vegetables because my kids, when you plant a sweet potato and they get to pull that thing up in, you know, four or five months when it's ready to be harvested, it's like you know, digging for buried treasure.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that raises a question I had. You mentioned the at-risk youth you work with and the special ed students. Gardening requires patience. I wondered how you provide the encouragement and the reward that may need to come sooner with some of your volunteers? (laughs) That's a very good question (laughs) because I was
3: looking at the raised beds yesterday and we we have we do have a wonderful partnership. One of my grant partners is the Paideia School and the Paideia School has their own growing operation. They have a tremendous urban agriculture program for their students. But part of it is a social justice initiative. And so uh, Paideia grows the plants for my trellis programs. And so I have farmer Aaron at the Paideia school who always has something ready for me. So if I feel like we need something more immediate with our groups instead of starting something from seed, Then I have I have those plants available and we did we just we planted greens and Swiss chard and and romaine lettuce and, you know, there they all you stick them in and the kids are like, wow, this is great.
2: (laughs) Do, Do they ever eat with you?
3: Um, you know, they haven't yet because we just started the program with the students at the end of the year, uh, but Brooke, you know, Brooke, we might want to touch on the the Callenwald Gala because that was that was really something I've been very hesitant about doing um, virtual sessions with my clients because gardening is so hands on. And, you know, in my mind, i was just like, you know, there's no way we can do virtual gardening sessions, but Kallenwald had a gala and Andrew Keenan, the executive director, thought it would be wonderful if the students could participate in some way and then we could share about the Ability Garden at the gala because I think some of the Kellenwald supporters really didn't know what was going on with the Ability Garden. So we worked with the florist um, Faith Flowers that Kellenwald uses for their events and we honestly did a video on how to do floral arrangements. These were the centerpieces for the gala, and the teachers at um, Inman Middle delivered all the supplies to all the students. <laughs> the teachers and it took her like three hours one morning to get everything delivered. We did a Zoom session on floral arrangement that afternoon and picked them all up that day, and they honestly looked fantastic. I was thinking we're going to have to spend hours, you know, maybe making them look better (laughs) for the event, but the students did a great job and the parents were just, I think they were so excited because I think learning virtually for special ed students has, has been a challenge and they love hands on and they love purpose and they build it as a community helper day where, you know, I was a little concerned about having them make flower arrangements and then come pick them up and take them away. And I told the teachers, I said, well, can we do another one with them so they can have one at home? And she says, you know, they're learning, they're learning about helping and that they're helping the community. They're helping Callenwald raise money for these types of programs. And I thought that was a wonderful lesson. And it was also a lesson for me.
2: It, it is a great lesson. Brooke, this is for you as well as Rachel. How do you hope to see the Ability Garden and other such programs related to it expand over the next few years?
1: I think that this Ability Garden is sort of like a seed being planted at Callenwald to really make all of our programs accessible. You know, we're in a historic campus, 100 years old, and the Frank Barham Fund and Trellis and this Ability Garden just sort of feel like the beginning of the next chapter for Cowanwald to be more accessible in our programming and to offer therapeutic services such as this horticultural therapy. So the next chapter, I just see this flourishing. I see all of our grounds being more accessible. I see us doing more horticultural therapy across our campus, making a more sustainable campus. It's really exciting. I feel like this partnership is just the beginning of a whole new chapter at Cowanwald, and we're really excited about it.
3: Brooke had a session with some artists about making some planter-type pottery for the garden so we can have a fusion of nature and art because it is an artist center. and. Um, we do a lot of nature art with with our clients, which I love. We do press flower art. I've been doing that with my uh, incarcerated women. And we have big plans for some holiday activities. We're going to do a couple holiday wreath workshops at Callenwald. One of my dreams is some of the middle school students at Inman Middle graduated and went on to high school. And when you start growing plants, especially in a greenhouse, it requires a big personal commitment to take care of those plants and help them grow and become you know, a, an asset for our organization because I told Brooke, I said, I'm tired of buying plants. We're gonna grow all our plants ourselves one day. So I'm in the early stages of talking with the APS High School about a vocational training program for some of the high school students with, with special needs. I think gardening and landscaping are great career pathways. And so I hope that something like that can happen um, in 2021.
2: Well, congratulations on this wonderful endeavor and a fantastic addition to our community. Brooke Adams of Cal and Walt, Rachel Cochran, the co-founder of Trellis, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much for having us in this opportunity.
2: Callanwald Fine Arts Center will host the grand opening of the Ability Garden this Saturday from 2 to 5 p.m. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Since the COVID-19 pandemic, Theatre companies and arts organizations have had to change the way they feature performances and presentations. Felipe Barra, an award-winning producer-director and founder of Igni Productions, talked about how he's working with theatre companies to adapt live performances into
0: digital packages. Nowadays, obviously, video. Even before COVID, obviously, uh, in the last you know five years or so, video has come to the forefront in terms of that's the way we consume uh, everything in this digital society. So if any company is not doing videos, they are not sort of talking to their audiences and engaging. So you know, COVID has pushed the idea for a lot of companies that they need to have this, this strong digital presence with shows where, where they cannot have live uh, audiences. But the point is, you know, you, you embrace that. It's not just to, to say, oh, let's bring a couple of cameras and, you know, film from the back of the room, a live performance, and that's it. Uh, what we're trying to really do is also kind of bring the cinematic aesthetic and the cinematic production. If you combine theater with cinematography, what can you do together? So we come in the idea that let's be partners in this and let's try to conceive the, the digital version of the show, which may or may not be given, of course, you know, to the actual live performance if you see it live. But how can you enhance the experience for the viewer that is going to watch something like this? And I think those are the beautiful moments when it happens, when you start thinking through the lens and bringing that into the equation. And all my you know, professional career, you know, I've been trying to capture beauty and bring beauty to the world because I I think we need it, especially now more than ever. And, you know, if you can choose a topic where that beauty can be there in front of your lens, you know, the artistic (laughs) institutions, you know, are are sort of those great partners. So working with theater, it's, it's, it's fascinating because of that, you know, same idea. And it's different in a sense of, just doing a purely you know film because you are indeed basing it around a live theater performance and in this case you know we want to capture a little bit of that sense of this is live with an audience or with us as an audience so it is fascinating to approach it that way to approach it more uh, even though you're doing a more cinematic version of it you still kind of apply the documentary Filmmaking perspective, in the sense of you know you're not gonna you know you're not gonna be filming this for two months right you know you're not gonna be just you know saying act uh, action and cut action and cut every single moment you want the performer to just give you you know the the performance and 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 ideally capture it in one time beautifully with multiple cameras and then you do the magic in the post production side of things but also you know you have the ability to actually at least work with sort of some takeaways. You can do some other extended scenes you know, that you want to emphasize and change the angles and everything. But once you kind of capture that moment, I always believe in this idea that even if I do a, a very crafted film, I don't like to do it 800 times and, and say action and cut multiple times because I want to capture a moment. And that moment has to be beautiful. And the performance is happening in front of you. The actor is giving you 100% and you are also giving 100% to capture that moment in the most beautiful way you can. And I think that's the beauty and the challenge of what we're trying to do. And that's the fascinating aspect.
2: That was Felipe Barral of ICNI Productions. In recent months, his company has worked with the Atlanta Opera Synchronicity Theater and the Serenby Institute for Arts, Culture, and the Environment.
1: Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets
1: of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the
2: Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It has been five years since Rand Suffolk became executive director of the High Museum of Art. He joins us now to discuss some important developments at the museum during his administration. Rand, welcome back to City Lights.
4: Thank you, Lois. It's always such a great pleasure to be here.
2: Likewise, and congratulations. We've got some major accomplishments to hear about. Before you joined the High in 2015, what was your take on the museum's representation of artists?
4: Well, you know, one of the reasons that I was very excited about coming to the High was that I thought that, candidly, they had been about a step or two ahead of many of our peers in the field in terms of their commitment to collecting artists of color, women artists, and so forth. And so, especially when it came to the modern contemporary collection. And so, for me, that was, that was something that I found very inspiring and, and encouraging.
2: Recently, the High Museum issued an art and inclusion report. What specific issues does the report assess?
4: Well, let me take a step back and give you a little bit of a sense as to why we decided to put that report out there. I think, you know, over the course of the, the past eight or nine months, as the world has in many respects turned upside down, as our nation and our city and, and candidly are an in- institution? Uh, struggled to gain some kind of new perspective on the persistent racial inequality in our society and so forth. The high, you know, we thought it was a good time to kind of pause and take our own temperature to see where we were in respect to a lot of those things. And we as an institution had been, I think, working very intentionally over the course of the past five years to, as as we've talked about before on this show, to, to hopefully change ourselves in order to become a profoundly different magnet within the community. And so what ultimately we did was we tried to aggregate a lot of the data that we had been keeping track of uh, year in and year out over the course of the past five years, really from an accountability standpoint, to kind of pull it all together into a one-stop shop uh, so that it could begin to frame a dialogue uh, internally uh, about what was next. I mean, this is a, a body of information that was pulled together first and foremost to be a tool for our staff and for our board, as I said, to kind of come together about what next steps uh, there could be, both from an opportunity standpoint and a leadership standpoint, but also, quite frankly, from an improvement standpoint. As we pulled this data together and we had conversations with our staff, I ended up having one-on-one meetings with all of our departments. Uh, They gave some great feedback and, and challenged some things and encouraged us to look at things differently, did the same thing with our board. As part of that process there was a growing consensus that we should share that information. And we had done that to one degree or another. As I said before, it was shared in staff meetings. It was shared at board meetings. It may have been shared at some of our fundraising events and so forth, because we were proud of some of the things that we were doing, but we never really kind of put it out there in this way. And so what started off is really, a, again, a document that was intended to be a tool for us internally. Ultimately, uh, we decided to capture an opportunity And and use it as, I would say, sort of a a values-driven exercise in transparency with the community. And so we took this document and we we sent it out to our entire membership. Uh, We followed that up with an invitation for a town hall with me so that people could ask questions about it. And then we also then turned around and sent it out to the other 150,000 plus individuals that are in our database. uh, So they would have an opportunity to review it. And we created a, a, a digital version of this. There's actually a dashboard that reflects all of this information that's located on our website. And that's something that over time we can, we can use to update. But to most specifically answer your question, it really covers a range of topics. Everything from who's coming to the museum, some information about the kind of artists and the diversity of the artists that we're collecting, it talks about our staffing levels, our board, volunteers on our, our docent corps and so forth. So it really does touch just as many facets of the organization as, as we could put in here.
2: You mentioned how the data is aggregated. How was the data initially collected?
4: Oh, it depends on what we're talking about. If we're looking at our visitation numbers, for example, uh, we collect Really great demographics on that group two ways, and I kind of say one is super easy and one is super creepy. Uh, the super easy way is that we have touch poles that are scattered throughout the, the facility, and we ask people. There's a survey that's built into that, and we ask people to self-identify and ask uh, answer a number of questions. And statistically, we have a universe of about three to four hundred thousand visitors a year. Let's say, uh, so based on what our statisticians tell us, we need you know give or take. 1,200 uh, good responses to have a statistically relevant sample, uh, we typically get that two to three times. So we're very comfortable in that data. And the second thing we do, the little creepy aspect is that it's remarkable in this day and age what, pe- what kind of demographic data people give away of just having a cell phone in their pocket or their purse when they walk into our, our buildings. And we've worked a number of times with a local firm that's able to, again, collect that data and put it together, and it's been astonishing the degree to which the cell phone data has completely mirrored what we're getting from the touch poles. So that's one good example. Otherwise, we're really just uh, keeping track. Um, so when it's it's very easy for us year in and year out, um, every year, in fact, that I've been here, uh, we've done a, a quick report and paid attention to the composition of our staff. Uh, and so we, we've got hopefully some things built in that encourage us to, as I said before, really make this an exercise in accountability for us every single year.
2: Hmm. Showcasing works by diverse artists is one way to increase representation. In your time at the High Ramp, there has been a 94% increase in the diversity of voices and experiences. How did you achieve the increase?
4: You know, I think that the one thing that's really important to understand uh, for me when it comes to this kind of work is that there's, there's so much about this that is not in, and perhaps should not be relegated to the, the creation of an opportunity budget. In other words, if we only had more money, we could do X, Y, or Z, right? You know, by and large, I think it really boils down to, to making different decisions and being committed as a culture to kind of seeing those decisions through. And so, for example, for us, you know, as an institution, Baha'i's always done exhibitions, we're always going to do special exhibitions at the museum. But I think we sort of redoubled our efforts and committed ourselves uh, to making sure that we were diversifying the the kinds of artwork that we were presenting, the voices that we were presenting, um, how could we embrace our responsibility and amplifying those perspectives in a way that dovetailed with the interests and the needs of our community. And so as a consequence of that, as you said, I guess between 2011 and 2015, we averaged about 32% of the special exhibitions that we put on view highlighted uh, work by BIPOC artists, women artists, LGBTQ plus artists, and so forth. But as you mentioned, over the course of the previous five years from 2016 to 2020, that's actually increased to 62% of the works that we've put on display. And I think it really just has to do with a a cultural commitment uh, to make sure that we're, you know, sort of relentlessly reinforcing what our values are in these areas.
2: Mm. I found it interesting that the age demographic of the most frequent visitors this year ranged from 6 to 17 years old, and that was excluding school
4: visits,
2: What accounts for the young visitors? Uh,
4: You know, we as an institution, I think we've really doubled down in our commitment to engaging families. We've got a remarkable education staff. Uh, They work like crazy and will walk through fire on behalf of our organization. And their efforts have have ultimately, we've seen about a 300% increase in family program participation during the course of the past five years. Um, And it's not hard to see why. Um, If you look at some of the programs that we're consistently providing, quickly name two. One is our Toddler Thursday program. It happens every Thursday afternoon. Bring the young ones in. There's some structured activities and some reading and so forth that happens with the, the little ones. I mean, we're averaging probably about 150 to 175 people, family members, every week that we do that program. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the Hallmark, I think, of our new relationship with the community. And that's our our free second Sundays program. We launched that in 2016. And again, as we've probably mentioned before, pre-program in 2015, we averaged about 1600 people on any given Sunday. Uh, And and last year uh, we were averaging just about 5,400 people. And that's an average uh, every second Sunday of the month. And if you haven't come to the museum on that day, it's a little bit different now because of the pandemic and our current circumstances. But in the future, I really encourage people to come because it's a remarkable day, unbelievable energy, uh, people from every walk of life, really all coming together to, to take advantage of their museum.
2: I must also tip my hat to your education department. Virginia Shearer is wonderful. The exhibitions, Are fantastic. We love picture the dream, and the coordinated events that you do with the alliance. Looking forward to after the pandemic when when some of those theater and music productions that go hand in hand can return.
4: Yeah, I I have to say there's nothing about that collaboration with the alliance theater that is not an absolute home run. Uh, those guys over there are just so extraordinarily talented and inspiring in what they do. Uh, they've been exceptional partners with this. And for those of your listeners that aren't familiar with what happens, we over the last number of years, we've, we've had a series of, ch- of exhibitions that focus on children's book illustrations. And uh, every single time that we do those exhibitions, the Alliance Theater really creates uh, a new a program, a new musical, a new play, and so forth that's inspired by that work uh, to deliver to their audience or our collective audiences. And it's always a remarkable, remarkable event. And I, I think that's a it, that actually touches upon another reason for I think the change that we've started to see at the museum. And that's the fact that collaboration is a, a remarkably important component of our DNA. Um, we've con- really committed ourselves to, to collaboration in important ways. But one of the things that I think sets us apart from many of our peers around the country, is that at least from a philosophical standpoint, we try very hard to only, quote unquote, um, work with other cultural organizations about 25% of the time. Uh, You know, we wanna continue to do great things with the Alliance or with the symphony or the ballet or you name it, but only about 25% of our time do we wanna be in that space. The other 75% of our time, we've really challenged ourselves to work with different nonprofit organizations. And the reason for that is that I think my experience has been that when you do that, two things occur. One is that it challenges you to think differently about your mission every single time you engage with one of these new partners. And the second thing is that ultimately uh, it exposes you to different segments of your community than perhaps otherwise you'd have a chance to engage. And so that has been particularly, I think, fruitful for us as well in terms of changing the demographics of of who our end users ultimately are.
2: Hmm. The Art and Inclusion Report also addresses the high shortcomings when it comes to diversity. Would you talk about the diversity gap in relation to the board of directors?
4: Sure. Right now, if you looked at our numbers, um, really over the course of the past few years, we've probably only been about 15 to 20 percent BIPOC uh, participation on that. And I can say without hesitation that that's, this is an area where our board is fully aware that there's a great opportunity uh, for change. Our nominating committee has done, I think, a very good job over the course of the past five, seven, eight years in focusing on diversity, but focusing on it primarily in terms of gender diversity and also age diversity. Um, but it's clearly, if you look at the demographic data that we've pulled together, it's time for us to, to, to kind of extend that degree of intentionality to other areas. And so we've, we've definitely got some, some work to do, uh, but I think that our, our board and our, our nominating committee in particular are fully dedicated to this and are moving forward with uh, their heart in the right place and with their eyes wide open about what needs to happen.
2: Mm. Rand, please tell us about the Mellon Undergraduate Curatorial Fellowship Programme.
4: Oh, I would be delighted to talk about that. And also, I'll give another plug for another program that's very similar to it. You know, one of the things that we struggle with as, in, as a field, really, is that there is an unfortunate lack of curators of color in the field. And we readily acknowledge that. Um, and so even if you look at our own staff, uh, we're not particularly diverse in that area, quite candidly. Um, but it's not for a lack of trying. Um, there really is a challenge nationally when it comes to this. And so the high, I think, has very, very intentionally tried to to figure out how can we control what we can control. And so back in 2012, we were one of uh, really only six institutions in the country that began to receive funding from the, the Mellon Foundation. And they created an undergraduate curatorial fellowship program. Two individuals, two students, undergrads, um, are assigned to the institution every single year. They're given a two-year fellowship uh, to work here at the museum. They're given a full paying stipend so they can you know not worry hopefully too much about you know just living. But then what they do is they're able to, to work with us as a member of our team, uh, get a lot of mentorship from our curators, from our education staff and so forth, and really give them a, a front row seat and an extraordinary introduction to the opportunities and the importance of, of working in an art museum. And the goal with that is that we're, again, very intentionally trying to build a pipeline for the future. And so, as I said, we've been doing that since 2012, we'll continue to do that. Um, And in a similar fashion, just over the course of the past two years, we've been working with our colleagues at the Atlanta University Center who have really uh, got some important funding from the Walton Family Foundation and launched the Atlanta University Center Collective for the study of art history and curatorial studies. This is sort of a one rung down even further and focuses on uh, participating students from high schools all across the country. And so about 12, uh, the first year, last year, 20 students actually participated in this program. And we're we're really fortunate to be a partner with them and give them, it's not, it doesn't focus exclusively on the museum, but there's a certain component of that throughout uh, where we're able to kind of dovetail our resources uh, with with some of the programmatic objectives of that program, and that's been particularly fruitful for us as well. And so, there's at the end of the day, there's unfortunately there's there is a reason why you have the Mellon Foundation or the Wally Fan, Walton Family Foundation making what are ultimately seven figure you know investments in the future of the field, and we feel very blessed that we're able to play a role in helping to develop that moving forward.
2: Oh yeah, how has the pandemic impeded? or affected plans to continue diversity and inclusion at the high?
4: You know, I think that's a, that's a super good question. I'm not sure that we focus so much on the impeding part as trying to adapt and figure out what can we continue to do from an accessibility standpoint to make sure that we're still cultivating a soft spot in the hearts of the, the, the people of Atlanta that we're still top of mind, that people are still turning to us for some focused or structured distraction, you know, some, an opportunity for, for just to fall in love with some true beauty and so forth. How do we move what we do within the institution uh, and put it out there sort of digitally and virtually? And are we able to, to use those programs as, as sort of a threshold opportunity uh, to encourage people once they get comfortable with engaging with us that way, will they now start to come back to the museum? So, I mean, clearly for us, there's the, the challenge of just the fact that we want, I think, from a missionary standpoint, for as many people as possible to come and visit the institution. But in the absence of us having been able to do that until very recently, I think we really tried to shift our focus to, to being as virtual as possible uh, to see what, what opportunities might actually exist in that realm. Um, we certainly don't have all the answers, but it, that has been a pretty exciting and interesting laboratory for us. And it will be, I think, uh, important from a strategic standpoint to see if there's, you know, out of the 12 or 16 different things that we've tried over the course of the past nine months, are there three or four of them that ultimately have legs and can be adaptable over the course of, you know, the next year or 18 months or two years? And what would that look like for us and how will that ultimately uh, provide the, you know, an increased level of connectivity with different segments of our audience?
2: In October, the High announced the appointment of Lauren Tate Beza as the Fred and Reader Richmond Curator of African Art. What experience does Lauren bring to the museum that will help guide the future of the African Art Department?
4: Well, you know, when we hire a curator, as part of what we're attempting to do is, you know, put in place a resident expert on that uh, specific collecting area. And so Lauren comes to us. She's got uh, both an undergraduate and graduate degrees uh, in African studies. uh, So she knows her stuff. Uh, She's got great perspective, I think, uh, on our collection and the opportunities that it provides in the future. So we were really kind of wowed with her level of commitment to that material, uh, her thinking around it, um, in addition to that, she's just someone that um, is, I think, for many of your listeners, maybe a known quantity in, in the community. She's done fantastic work at the Center for Civil and Human Rights here in Atlanta. And so she, this is home for her already. Uh, she understands our community and as an institution that tries very hard to be externally focused, I think that she's someone that will come and, and very quickly begin to strive to identify bridges Uh, that can be built between our collection and our audience, between our collection and the other collecting areas uh, within the institution. And from that standpoint, I think that her her addition to our staff is going to be incredibly generative. From a chemistry standpoint, I think she's going to be great with the other members, extraordinary members of our team. Uh, And I really look forward to seeing what she's going to bring to the table.
2: Yeah, I look forward to talking with her. Rand, finally, I guess this would be if you had to issue a plea or a statement to other museums, why must inclusivity be an essential factor for museums in decision-making?
4: What I would say is that art museums, our mission is to encourage the broadest possible public engagement, full stop. That's our mission. And if we're not Focusing on that part of it, if we're only focusing on one specific segment or a couple specific segments of what we perceive to be our audience, then I think we're really missing the boat in terms of why we exist and the work we're supposed to be doing. That's the missionary side of it. The mercenary side of it, I think, is that it's foolish. I mean, we're we're a nonprofit organization, but at the end of the day, we cannot take our eyes off sustainability, and I think it just doesn't make very good business sense that you would ignore, you know, 50, 70% of your audience when there's a great opportunity there. So the missionary part is clearly first and foremost, but there is a sustainability part of it that I think you'd be naive or disingenuous not to acknowledge. Um, and at the end of the day, candidly, it just will make you way more interesting <laughs> and fun than you would be otherwise.
2: Absolutely. Rand Suffolk, congratulations on Five years of accomplishments at the high. Here's to the next five.
4: Well, thank you so much. And I, you know, you're very kind to say my accomplishments, but the truth of the matter is, this is, a, as I said before, we're an extraordinary team here. We have remarkable leadership on our board that has been nothing but supportive uh, and, and really focused on trying to determine what's next for us. And so I really could not be more grateful for the opportunity that. Uh, I have to work with all of those individuals. So thank you for that.
2: Rand Suffolk is the executive director of the High Museum. There will be more information about the art and inclusion report on our website, wabe.org slash citylife. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow morning at 11, our guest will be the award-winning food writer Harold McGee. His new book is Nosedive, A Field Guide to the world Smells. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to member-supported 90.1 W-A-B-E, Atlantis Choice for NPR.
4: The world has changed
2: Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians. And we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta.
1: Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig.
0: Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) W-A-B-E.